Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. I want you to know that already on schedule, I'm four minutes behind, and I haven't even started. Isn't that something? You look at that list, and, and then I got to get out of here because I get downstairs. I don't know if you you can follow me if you want to go. Hear me again the second time. Maybe it'll be different. Anyway, I want you to be able to turn in your pew Bible. So if you'd like to do that, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, which is found in page uh, 358 and 359. We're going to look at the gift of wisdom, what it is that God provides. We're going to see, start a study that will be uh, continued for the next three weeks after this, looking at Solomon's life and how he exemplified wisdom, where he failed at wisdom, but what he wrote about wisdom, what he learned about wisdom. And so I want you to kind of... Rewind the tape with me back to 950 B.C. And think with me that Solomon, as a middle-aged man, his father David, a man after God's own heart, has died, and he is ascending to the throne of Judah and Israel. 967 is what theologians say that he, it's probably the date that he came to the throne. And he's necessarily concerned because uh, his dad was, like I said, a man after God's own heart, famous in war famous in establishing strength and vitality over that kingdom, even though he slipped in his own ways. He had been a man after God's heart, found forgiveness and mercy. And he's already told Solomon before he died, he said, you know, son, the Lord loves you. He loves you. And he'll always be with you. As long as your heart's turned toward him, he'll always be turned towards you. And Solomon's watched his dad as he's governed this nation, really a kind of a small nation, not a big nation on the stage and the ancient Near East, but one that's dynamic because of God's blessing upon it. A nation that God had chosen from the time of Abraham, really, to grow and to be a blessing to the nations around it. One that should have shown Israel and the people around it what God was like. And so David did a good job doing that. Write a lot of psalms about who God was, how to worship God, what it was to follow hard after God. And so when Solomon considers stepping into the throne, he's, he's probably a little concerned. He's thinking, man, I got some big shoes to fill here. My dad was a man after God's own heart. And so his first trip will be to Gibeon to offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. The tabernacle has been left in Gibeon, never to really arrive in Jerusalem. But the altar's there. David had brought the altar back. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He's brought the altar back and he set it inside of a tent. He used to go and sit before the altar of God in that tent, visiting with God, hearing from God. God spoke to him often there. And really, that was a, a tent that was kind of up for anyone's use. So I don't know, maybe Solomon went in there. But he defaulted to go back to what he knew of worship. He offered many sacrifices there. So this morning, I'd like us to read, starting in the last half of the last verse of chapter 2, and read this chapter 3 of 1 Kings, and try to pull out of it what it is it that God gives when he gives wisdom. Before I do that, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have not only inspired this word, but you enlighten our hearts with it, that it's good. It brings wisdom, God. The psalmist says it brings wisdom to bear in our hearts. God, we are a people living in a world that's really insane, one that has lost sight of what is truth, that lives by the best they can see. God, they are blinded by the God of this age. But, Lord, you've given light in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. We pray today, God, as we open your word, that it would open our hearts. We pray, God, that it would search us and try us and transform us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come 
in the power of the life of Jesus within us to illumine us, to let us see that this word will become a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. We ask these things, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Chapter 2, last phrase of verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I'm but a little child, I do not know how to go in or come out. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none shall rise after you. I give to you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. This is the word of the Lord. So here's this episode of this transition of power, Solomon coming to the throne of Judah and Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And as I said, he was probably a little intimidated about this role that he's going to take on. And as he begins to worship God the best that he had seen patterned probably by the priests, some interesting things happened. He'd been operating according to the best wisdom he had. If you read uh, the lead up to this, he's done away with Joab, who was a general under David, who acted violently against a couple other generals. And so David had told him, he said, when you come to the throne, kill Joab. So Joab was killed. He also took out his brother, who had pretended to be the senior in the role of becoming king. And he was taken out. This was kind of the way the ancient Near East. It's kind of the way in some places now, isn't it? Although maybe it might not be a death penalty, but it might be a death penalty in politics. Some places in the world, it still be a death penalty. People are killed when other people try to consolidate their power. And this was true for Solomon. And then he had this guy that, uh, named Simei. You remember him? He's the guy that cursed David when Absalom ran David out of town and stood on the side of the road. And David said, don't let him go scot-free. So Solomon says, as long as you stay in Jerusalem, you're all right. Don't leave. Well, he did end up leaving Jerusalem, and he was put to death for that. Abiathar, the priest who had sponsored 
the false pretenders had thrown, he was removed from the priesthood. So Solomon had kind of cleaned house. He had consolidated his kingdom the best he could. Under the law, that was all proper. Aren't you glad we don't live under the law? Even though the law is good and righteous and true, we're not under its dominion. We're in grace. We're free to live like Jesus lived. But Solomon was at least in a place now where his power is consolidated. He can begin to rule. And as he comes back to Jerusalem, he's in this worship time. He has this dream. God comes to him in a dream and asks him, what is it that you'd like to have? And basically he said, I like wisdom. I like that discerning heart. I'm a young man. He really wasn't that young. I mean, he's younger than me, but middle-aged. You know, I'm not middle-aged. He was middle-aged. Well, if I live to be 134, I'm middle-aged. So, but at any rate, Solomon says, I need wisdom, Father. I need wisdom to govern this people. I don't know how to come in or go out without your wisdom. So God said, I'm so glad you asked me that because I am the source. I am the resource, and I will always be your source of wisdom. And so he gave him that, and he said, because you've not asked great things for yourself, he said, I'm going to give you this wisdom. There won't be anybody to compare, but I'll also give you all the things that are accoutrements to that wisdom. Now Solomon had already started out not too good because he's already married Pharaoh's daughter. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy? Don't marry foreign wives. Don't do that. Don't accumulate for yourself a bunch of horses. He traded with Egypt. He had a huge cavalry, chariot horses. He had already been kind of steeped in that idea, living not according to wisdom, but according to what was pleasant to him, what accrue, would accrue glory and honor to him. Nevertheless, God dealt with him where he was, not where he should have been, but where he was. And grace always does that. It comes to us. It's a gift. Wisdom is a gift. And he gives this gift to Solomon, and Solomon worships them. This always comes. When we worship God, when we get humble before God, his wisdom is able to seep into our lives. So we have this episode then starting in verse 16 of what that wisdom would look like in the rule of Solomon. It says, Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman, I live, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else in the house with us. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. Now the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. So here's a piece of wisdom that we find out of the life of Solomon. He records it even in the Proverbs. He says, You know, the first person always seems right until you hear the second one's story. You ever been there, a place like that? But you know, that's not common sense. You know, if you look through, if you read the history of humanity, you find out common sense is not very common. It's fallen on hard times, hasn't it? And common sense is not wisdom because wisdom is imparted from God. But here Solomon stops and he thinks, okay, I've heard the report of the one. I've listened to the report of the two. And then in chapter 23, he shows the wisdom that God gives. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. 
But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And so we see this tremendous insight. And I've thought about that lots of times when I've read through that passage. How did he come up with that? It seems so natural now looking at reading about, oh, that's all. Oh, anybody would do that. I doubt any of us would do that. But he did because he had the wisdom of God to be patient, to hear both sides, to see the heart of those women, and the one who was compassionate, the one who was gracious, the one who was true to her child. That's the one that he recognized after he listened. Wisdom is patient. It's kind. It's good fruits. It's full of love. And this woman had that, and Solomon saw that. And he made a decision based on the wisdom that God had promised to give to him. Now, you and I are in the same position. We're in the same position where we can go to God and ask wisdom from him and know that he is generous and gives without reproach to those who ask in faith with no doubting. But the one who doubts is like a wave that's driven and tossed by the wind. And we don't assume to receive anything from God when we're double-minded like that. But if we come to God in faith and we ask, we can be assured he's going to give generously. In fact, he's the father of lights from whom every good gift and every perfect endowment comes, James says. So when we go to him and ask for wisdom, we can anticipate that's what we receive. So Solomon started off really good. He came back from Gibeon. He offered sacrifices in Jerusalem. He listened to God. He began to operate out of wisdom. But he didn't finish that well. And so as we read about him, we find out that in his compromise, he brought tremendous decay and desolation on the nation of Judah and Israel. In fact, his son Rehoboam will inherit a nation that is quickly divided because wisdom had been deserted. How did this happen? How do you go from being a wise person, a wise man gifted by God to what Solomon became? One who writes in Ecclesiastes about how he had made a pursuit of possessions and power and prowess and propriety and pleasures especially. How he'd begun to pursue those things. The exact things that God said, I'm glad that you didn't ask me for these things, but because you didn't, I'll add those on as a bonus. Jesus said this. He said, if you'll seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, I'll make sure that you have everything else needful in life. I know what you need before you ask me. And if you'll seek my kingdom and make that your priority, all these other accoutrements, all these other advantages in life will be added to you. But Solomon got off the trail and he began to pursue because he had the power to do it. He began to use that power for his own purposes. So think about a guy that's got a thousand wives. Well, that's a terrible thought. You know? I really like my wife. But can you imagine having 1,000 different personalities in your harem? That's a, big, that's a big house there, you know. Some people have big houses. There's two of them living in there. Solomon's got a big house, and there's got to be at least 1,100 rooms, you know. That's a lot of birthdays to remember. <laughs> and you've got to pick just the right card, you know. Hallmark says so. <laughs> I bet they don't even have 1,000 cards for a wife's birthday. But he... He accumulates all these wives, a bunch of whom are political, advantageously working toward his authority. Gold is coming in by the truckload. You know, if you see all the tons of gold that came, he makes Jeff Bezos look like a pauper. I mean, this guy had all of these possessions, and yet 
As he got further and further from God, he cried out and he said, man, this is vanity of vanities. This stuff is not satisfying. It's like chasing after the wind. Once I get it, it's gone in my hand. And he writes this whole treatise in Ecclesiastes that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks about how that does not satisfy. And then you have Jesus who comes on the scene because Jesus is the wisdom of God. I want to read this to you out of 1 Corinthians. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he's, he's writing to a very sophisticated group of people, highly educated, very successful in business, but very short on wisdom and the love that comes with wisdom. And as he writes to them, he's using this root word. You know, the New Testament word for wisdom is Sophia. So you all know somebody named Sophia? Ever met somebody named Sophia? That means they're wise. That's their name after wisdom. So he's speaking about the wisdom of man. There's two kinds of wisdom in the world. There's a wisdom that comes horizontally as we receive the counsel of other people and maybe are educated in the finer universities. If there are any left, I'm not sure. When I read about how they assess universities, I'm not sure there are any finer universities left. But if there are, we're taught on a horizontal plane and we're assimilating and collecting all of this knowledge. But you know, knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is the application. It's the living out of actions that lead to a successful purpose. And success is defined by God. God says success is this. I will unite all things together in Christ Jesus to the praise of my glory. That's wisdom. That's success. To live toward the end that God has in mind for me and you. To collect all of our lives, to collect all that we have, to collect all the influence that we can garner and to use it to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we're like Solomon. We, we fall short of that often, don't we? So Solomon falls short and he has to make a life in correction. He writes Ecclesiastes and says, you know, all the stuff, aside from the kingdom of God, and aside from the wisdom that he gives, it's all vanity. It disappears in the end. It's not there any longer. But those things that God gives and the wisdom that he counsels us with is toward the endurance of all the good and all the glory of God and the benefit of us. And Israel was to be a benefactor. He, they were to benefit all the nations around them, but they fell short of that and became cursed because Solomon led this charge almost headlong into denying God's wisdom and receiving his counsel horizontally. But those who have real wisdom receive it vertically. Did you know that the Bible says, and I'm going to read this in just a minute, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And so we are to have this understanding. We have an open heaven. As those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if we've done that, we have this open heaven. We have access to God, and the wisdom and counsel of the ages is freely given to those who ask. Because God is the giver of wisdom. So listen to what Paul says to this sophisticated church, the church in Corinth. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, listen to this, who became to us wisdom. And then he unpacks, what's that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be our wisdom? He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is everything to us. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So the Greeks had this philosophy of trying to figure out what the prime mover was behind all of creation. What made it tick? 
What caused it to work, and how can we buy into that? And the term they used was logos. Isn't that interesting? They felt that the prime mover had to be this logos, this word. And John comes along writing to the Hellenistic Jews, and he says, you got it right. And Jesus Christ is the word of God, the wisdom of God. God created the earth and all that's in it, all we can see and all that we can't see. He made that by his wisdom, by his word, Jesus. And so when you go read through the book of Proverbs, you find out that wisdom is personified. Not only is it valued, it's personified. It talks about wisdom being with God in the creation. It talks about how wisdom sang with God there as things were put together, as all of creation was tagged together and put into harmony. And then it talks about wisdom being a woman who goes through the streets calling to people, come in, you foolish, you, you tender-hearted, you naive people, come in, receive the wisdom of God. We don't want to be a scoffer because the scoffers and the fools refuse the wisdom of God. We want to be those people who ask God. So I want you to think with me about this whole idea of how you got this contrast between Solomon, who started out so well and really had a good environment. His father bequeathed to him so much, and yet he ended up really wrecking it all. And Jesus, who started out with so little, just the simple, the plain things in life. God chose the simple things to confound the wise. Jesus, born in a manger, grew up in a carpenter's shop, didn't have a reputation for anything. He came from Galilee. And yet, when he encountered all the pressures of the earth, when he encountered temptations to prowess and power and possessions, he said, get behind me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. And Jesus became the incarnation of what wisdom is defined as in the writings of Solomon. And he becomes our wisdom. He's our wisdom. We have access to this wisdom in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to think just really briefly about a couple of, maybe four different things that we can do. The way that wisdom comes to us is one, we put ourselves in a position of worship. When Solomon went to worship and went home that night, God appeared to him in a dream. There's something about when we begin to extol God, when we sing his praises, when we testify of his goodness, especially corporately, we open ourselves up. It makes us tender. It makes us receptive to God. And he can come and impart his wisdom. And we become humble. And, you know, really, we've got a lot to be humble about, don't we? Don't you and I have a lot to be humble about? We don't control much, do we? We don't control our skin color. We don't control the nation we were born in. We don't control the family we were born in. We don't control the geography where we showed up. We don't control any of those things. And we don't control the day of meeting Jesus face to face. We control so very little. We've got a lot to be humble about. And when we come to worship God and he is exalted and seen as the one who creates and sustains and redeems and is the Alpha and the Omega, it makes us see we need to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. And then we can ask, we can pray, oh Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom to know the number of my days. Give me wisdom to be a husband as I should be, a wife that honors you, a child that honors their parents. Father, give me the wisdom that you have promised, the wisdom that you grant to those who ask. You are the Father of lights. Every good gift I know comes from you, Father. Give me that kind of wisdom that's fruitful, that's righteous, that is peaceful that James talks about in chapter 3. Grant me that kind of wisdom to live a life pleasing to you. And you know, God gives it generously. He doesn't reproach. He doesn't say, nah, I don't have enough to go around. No, you got enough. No, if we're willing to worship and humble ourselves and ask, then God will give. And then we begin to obey what he says to do. And it becomes a cycle. Worship, 
humility, prayer, obedience, worship, humility, prayer, obedience. And God's wisdom continues to flow into our lives over and over, day after day. And he sustains us. And one of the great things about wisdom is this. God who knows all things and works all things, works those things together for our good. His wisdom is such, so powerful that Paul raises his hands and prays in Romans chapter 11 and says, oh, the unsearchable riches of God's wisdom and power. And that that power comes to keep us, no matter our circumstance, whether, whatever physical thing that we encounter, whatever emotional conflict that we might know, whatever we come into contact with in life, God says, my wisdom will bring you through because I have ordained that all things will be to the praise of my glory united in Christ Jesus. I hope you have that kind of wisdom. I hope you're seeking that kind of wisdom because every other wisdom will fail except that that comes down from the Father of lights. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today, God, with your saints, we ask together, God, for the wisdom that comes in Christ Jesus that's powerful, it's peaceful. God, it's righteous. It brings healing. God, it affects those around us. It benefits even prostitutes, as in the example of Solomon. It shows no partiality. You are a generous and a good father. Jesus, you are righteous and true. Be our wisdom. Be our wisdom, we ask it. In Jesus' mighty name, Father, amen.